0: We're going to turn our attention to God's Word and talk about everybody's favorite topic, money. <laughs> Last year, Americans spent somewhere in the ballpark of $930 billion on Christmas. Now, if you don't have a calculator here with you today, that's almost a trillion dollars. Trillion, right? Now, I probably don't need to use that much emphasis as we don't even really bat an eye with those kind of numbers anymore. We hear the word billion and trillion today, but I love putting them in perspective. You've probably heard this or something like this before, but let's say that for Christmas this year, you tell your kids you're going to Disneyland. Kids, your parents are not taking you to Disneyland. But just for, just for the discussion, you tell your kids you're going to Disney in a million seconds. Now in days... At a million seconds, how long would they have to wait to go? There's probably somebody in here who's just like, I know exactly, but around 11 and a half days, right? That's not too bad. That's pretty soon. Now, if you tell them you're going to go in a billion seconds, how many days is that? 11,574 days. That's nearly 32 years. So you can go on ahead and tell them you're going to Disney in a billion years. 930 billion seconds is around 29,490 years. $930 billion spent at Christmas time. And those numbers year after year just continue trending upward. And that's just America, right? Of the 7.9 billion people on earth, America only has 330 million. For $930 billion, that's a lot of money, And based on those numbers, it would seem as though the people of North America are aggressively generous. But that's generosity pointed at family, at friends, right? Co-workers, teachers, or even ourselves, right? Like, how many of you bought a PlayStation for the kids, right? You guys have done that. Or that skimpy, silky number that you bought for her. It's really generous. So you're a thoughtful giver. Now, this week, the Financial Post published an article with the headline, Canadians turn more stingy as charitable giving dips to 20-year low. The subheading was fewer people donating to charity, and those that do are contributing less. Stats based on tax filings show that as a country, we, as Canada, give on average 0.55% of our income to nonprofits. Generous. Now, some of you are probably worried that I'm here at the end of the fiscal year to bang you over the head in a sermon about tithing. It's not that. Maybe it's that. If you're feeling a little twinge in your heart right now and like need a sermon on tithing, that's what this is. That said, this is actually a sermon about generosity and where it comes from, what it isn't, and what it can be. Last week, Lee mentioned that we're not doing a Christmas series so much this year. We're continuing our series in Acts. But as it turns out, our passage today speaks directly to the heart of how we handle the resources that God has given us, which, as we all know, is a real challenge this time of year. So it's kind of a Christmas message, if you need it to be one. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 4. I'm going to invite you to stand as we read this verse or these verses together. Acts chapter 4. Verses thirty two to thirty five. This is what we read. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said any of the things sorry, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. This is the word of the Lord. And you can have a seat. That sounds pretty good. Like it's a society where people who have take their possessions, their riches, their wealth, and instead of being weighed down by them, they care for one another with them. Now, a few of you in here just got real tense and are worried that I'm about to step into a sermon promoting a communist worldview. I am not. But just to keep you on edge a little bit, I'm also not stepping into a sermon promoting capitalism. The early church did not have a socialist agenda, but but, the idea that the rich, or let's just say that those with money or possessions to spare, the idea that they should sacrificially care for those who don't have those things is God's plan. It's His idea. It's His plan for caring for the poor and the downtrodden. Go all the way back to Deuteronomy 15. Reread this. There should be no poor among you, For the Lord your God will greatly bless you in the land that he is giving you as a special possession. But if there are any poor Israelites in your town, when you arrive in the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Instead, be generous and lend them whatever they need. Do not be mean-spirited and refuse someone a loan because the year for canceling debts is close at hand. If you refuse to make the loan and the needy person cries out to the Lord, read this, You will be considered guilty of sin. Give generously to the poor, not grudgingly. For the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. There will always be some in the land who are poor. That is why I am commanding you to share freely with the poor and with the other Israelites in need. It seems pretty clear God's command to Israel was that they were to care for one another. There should be no poor among you. He says that there will, though, always be poor among you, but his command is to care for them. God's plan for his people is to be generous to the needy and to one another, that those who have resources should remember, this is a command, who should. I am commanding you to share your resources with those who are in want. Now, this this command weaves its way all throughout Scripture. Jesus, the Word, God's Word, right? Jesus, who came to earth, the fulfillment of the law. He came to show us how to live out the commands in Scripture, including the one that's given there in Deuteronomy chapter 15. And this is what Jesus said in Luke 12. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. It's a statement. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where there are no thief, pardon me, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Regardless of your political, socioeconomic leanings, God's instruction to his people, us included, it's not just Israel, it's us his instruction to his people when it comes to caring for the poor is clear. He says, do it. It's a command. But it's a command that like all the other commands that were given in Scripture, it needs to be followed not just in deed, but in heart. Our obedience to this command needs to come from the heart. Deuteronomy 15 and Luke 12 share what I think is the component that separates the people of God from the ideology of communism. And you know what? It's it's also what separates the people of God from capitalism. Because without this component, it doesn't matter what your leanings are. Until Jesus returns to rule in perfection, as long as imperfect men and women try their best to move the world forward, things will never be as they are supposed to be The answer to our problems as a society isn't the right man in power. It's not the right woman in power. It's not the right legislation. Those things can help, but those people, those systems, they're not God's plan to renew all things. Communism isn't the answer. Capitalism isn't the answer. Education reform isn't the answer. Guys, The gospel is the answer. Jesus is the answer. What is our hope in life and death? Right? The catechisms. A free market. No. Wealth sharing. No. Our hope in life and death is that we are not our own, but belong body and soul in life and death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So before we have a conversation about generosity and the command that we have to extend it to those around us, we've got to put the horse back in front of the cart, so to speak, and remember where our obedience, where our generosity actually comes from, which is our first point. Generosity is the byproduct of a heart or of hearts shaped by the gospel. Look again at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Every one of them bound together with one heart and soul. And what is that heart and soul? Well, the book of Acts is a record of the early days of the church of Jesus Christ. A group of people from all over, right? All walks of life, all socioeconomic demographic, people banded together under the lordship of Jesus. It's a group of people whose hearts have been changed, renewed, refocused, redirected, and brought in line with the heart of the one who saved them, who called them and who filled them with his spirit, with power to be bold and to be his hands and his feet to the world. That's the starting point. That was the starting point for them. Notice verse 32 isn't ordered. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And so the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No, it's the other way around. One is the result of the other, and the order is not interchangeable. Now, that's not to say that being generous can't have an effect on your heart. It certainly can. And at the risk of contradicting myself immediately after making a specific point, the truth is behavior, both ours and that of those around us, actually does have an impact on our hearts. Right? If we intentionally choose to sin to act in ways that God has explicitly instructed us not to. It it hardens and darkens our hearts. And on the flip side, much like exercise or doing the good, the, the hard, the right thing, the thing that maybe we don't want to do, doing that can actually help us grow, help us experience joy and peace and fulfillment. And it's not just our own actions. It's the actions of those around us, the behavior of those around us. We tend to take on the opinions and habits and affections of the people around us. They're highly, highly contagious. Like what is important to your close group of friends? Is it chasing the dream, right? Like eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. It, also, it doesn't have to be negative, right? It could be positive. Our passage is really positive with this. Maybe your friend group is all about coming together to serve in some capacity or pooling your resources to help someone in need. Behavior, both our own and that of those with whom we surround ourselves can have an effect on our hearts. But the kind of behavior that we're seeing in our passage specifically is something that comes from the posture of their hearts. It's a heart first situation. Now, I really need to stop using this analogy, but I probably won't. Like most of you have heard this and can check your email real quick if you need to. But Nikki and I have been married for 25 years. We exchanged vows promising to be faithful to one another. God's word is explicit in telling me that I am to remain faithful to her. Nikki has been explicit that I am to remain faithful to her. So I do stay faithful. Why? Like because I promised? Sure. Because God said so? Maybe. I mean, yes, of course, because she told me she'd kill me if I wasn't yet. Yes, of course. But when it comes down to it, the reason that I do is because I love my wife. Sure, I want to do what's right according to the rule book, but my love for her is exclusive. My love for her makes me want to live in a way that brings her joy and comfort and security. It comes from somewhere else. Our actions are the outworking of what's inside our hearts. Our study of Galatians through this summer reminded us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. They are the result of the Spirit working in us. We don't put the Spirit in us by being patient, kind, and gentle. And this, what we see in our passage today, is the result of a community all being of one heart and soul, the heart and soul of Jesus. And that heart overflows with love and kindness and goodness, caring for those in their midst who need it the most. Look, it comes from here, from inside the heart, which if we're honest, is a really hard thing for a lot of us. Many of you know very well the account of the rich young man who, in the Gospel of Mark, asked Jesus what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus tells him he needs to follow the law and all the commandments. And in verse 20, we read this, And he, the rich young man, said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, all of these things I have kept for my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, and I love this, he loved him. Didn't condemn him. He loved him. And said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And what was his response? Verse 22 says, Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. Why? For he had great possessions. After this encounter, Jesus laments to the disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to inherit the kingdom of God. And why? Is it because wealth or possessions are evil or sinful? Scripture doesn't tell us that. No. It's a matter of the heart. Our hearts are so easily won over by our things, by our wealth, our power, our influence. Look, godly people with the greatest of intentions have been seduced by the temptation that comes with wealth time and time again. It's a matter of the heart. 1 Timothy 6.10 For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Look, money isn't the root of all evil, which is how we normally read that passage. The love of money is a root of, of all kinds of evil. Wealth and possessions, while they're not evil in and of themselves, they can be dangerous. They carry with themselves temptation enough that some have wandered away from the faith. Guys, later in that same chapter we read this, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He gives us those things. Instead, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul is telling Timothy to instruct the rich people in his church. So rich people still existed, right? to not let their wealth get the best of them, but to use it for the glory of God and in so doing experience life fully. He's not telling Timothy to mandate that everyone in their church should sell everything they have and bring it in so they can distribute it all. He's not telling the rich people in the church that their wealth is a sin, but he is reminding them that it is dangerous. In Luke 12, Jesus said, take care. And be on your guard against all covetousness, which is really what we're talking about. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Again, not condemning wealth, not condemning possessions, but warning about, strongly warning about the pitfalls associated with wealth. It's about the heart. The people in Acts chapter 4 cared for one another. They loved one another. They loved Jesus and wanted to be more like him, and as their hearts came into alignment with his, they looked around and saw the needs of others, their brothers and their sisters, and they were moved to radical and sacrificial generosity. Crossridge, this should be us. And actually, Crossridge, many of you don't know this, but this is us. We've been intentional about pooling our resources to give towards projects. Many of you in this room give specifically toward our Benevolent Fund to help those who are in need in our church family and in our community. And you might not be one of them, but this is a church made up of some remarkably generous people. And I'm not saying that based on a glance at the donation receipts, in case you're wondering, I don't look at your donation receipts. But I regularly hear stories about people and most of the time I don't get names, people who have cared for the people in their community groups, who have cared for people in the church that they might not even know, meeting serious needs. This is in line with what we see in Acts chapter 4. Now, a lot of what happens around here doesn't go noticed. It isn't seen. Because we don't parade generous donors up on stage to hand a check to someone in need on a big piece of 4x8 coroplast. so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Look, generosity, again, is a byproduct of a heart shaped by the gospel. And what is the gospel? Well, because of our sin, we, all of us, are headed to ruin, to judgment, damnation, but in His great love for us, to show us His glory and a remarkable act of grace, God sent Jesus to stand in judgment in our place. Not because of anything we had done. Grace cannot be earned. We do not deserve what we have been given. It's a debt that only we could owe and a price that only God could pay. You see where we're going with this? We have had our most deep need met through an incredible gift of grace. Through nothing that we've done ourselves. Jesus loved us and died for us and commanded his followers to do the same for one another, right? John 15, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he tells them how that looks. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So it only makes sense that when these individuals who have experienced the love and grace of Jesus, his sacrifice on their behalf, that these people who have experienced a blessing beyond measure would then in turn be gracious and generous to meet the needs of those who are not capable of meeting their own. Do you see it? It's the same. Now, can people be generous apart from the gospel? Absolutely, they can. There are many, many extravagantly generous people who are not followers of Jesus. And their motives aren't even necessarily self-serving. Right? They can be giving in order to actually improve the lives of the people around them. But I think that's because we are all, every last one of us, made in the image of God. Right? It's in us. We were created to care for one another. Sin makes that really hard. But it is there. But for those of us who have been forgiven, who have experienced the gospel, how much more generous should we be? A church should be a group of people who care for one another and use the resources that God has given us to meet the needs of others. And as I've already mentioned, Crossridge is a church like this. You might not see it, but it's happening. Could it happen more? Absolutely. It can. On this side of eternity... Our growth as disciples doesn't reach an end point. It goes on and on and on as God's spirit continues to convict us of sin and prompts us to do the works that he prepared for us before the foundations of the earth. Look, maybe your heart isn't generous. Maybe it's not. If you're not able to see the needs around you or you see them, but you actually don't want to do anything about them, don't resign yourself to a life of misery. of just hoarding which is really, it's, it's a life of misery, right? It's the same word. Instead, we should use this as an opportunity to respond to the Spirit's call on our life to open our heart to Jesus, to let Him do the work of sanctification in us. You're still breathing, most of you. It's not too late. Ask God to change your heart, to let it be shaped by the gospel and be made more like His. It's an issue of the heart. Generosity is a byproduct of hearts shaped by the gospel. As such generosity is so important but for our second point yeah you can put that up there now logan generosity doesn't replace the gospel verse 33 and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the lord jesus and great grace was upon them all something that is so important to note here is that the end game of the church in acts was not that everyone had everything in common The mission of the church is not to meet the needs of the world. Is that part of the mission? Yes. Meeting the needs of those around us, being a tangible expression of God's grace to the world, these are vital aspects of any church. We should be known for doing this. We should be unashamedly, extraordinarily, and sacrificially generous, but it's not the mission. The mission is the spread of the gospel of Jesus. Yes, hearts shaped by that gospel are generous, hospitable, seeking justice. There are amazing things that happen when people are gripped and turned upside down by the amazing gift of grace that we've been given. But the, miss, the mission, the message in all this is Jesus. With great power, the apostles were, what? They were giving their testimony. They were generous They were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Like, I'm not minimizing the importance of generosity in this. But I'm also not prioritizing it. The generosity in our passage was amazing. I think Luke is even saying that their generosity contributed to the power with which they were able to preach the message. The readiness with which those who were around them were hearing the gospel would have been increased by the way that this community cared for each other. Eric Thomas said that nothing destroys evangelism more than the duplicity and hypocrisy of the messenger. The world's only knowledge of Jesus Christ is what it sees in the lives of Christians. If what it sees is a community more concerned for self-aggrandizement than mutual support, why should it listen? If the world sees Christians criticizing each other in attempts at one-upmanship and self-promotion, it will turn away, hardened to the message of the gospel. Instead, What they witnessed in Jerusalem in our passage was a community in which those who had much sacrificed for the sakes of those who had little. It was a tangible expression of their love. The world should see our love for one another expressed in the way that we care for each other's physical needs and the needs of those in our community. Sadly, however, some Christians, some churches have allowed the weight of, placed on generosity or as we call it more often nowadays, social justice to eclipse that of preaching the gospel. And I've seen it. I've seen it. This isn't a watch out for what might happen somewhere down the line kind of thing. This is a don't let what's happening over there happen here kind of a thing. This is happening now. We hear it all the time. What are we doing about this issue? What about this one? What about this other one? Don't you care about these people? How can we not respond to this injustice? Like, is there injustice? Clearly, yes. Is there poverty? Of course. Are there marginalized people? Yes, there are. Are there things as a church that we should be doing or could be doing and maybe doing more of? Of course. But is that the mission do we bail on preaching in order to address what's happening in the world? No, we don't. But we do both. And it's hard, and it's yucky, and it's divisive, and can make us unpopular with the world or with other churches or with people in our communities and workplaces. Look, it's, it's preaching and action. It's both things. It's not one or the other. Our mission as a church We often say, we often say it's our mission statement is to know Jesus and to make him known. Our mission isn't just to know Jesus. It's not just to come here and hear preaching. It's also to know him and make him known. These are things that go together. It's faith and works, right? Just like we read in James 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, I love that this is actually what we're talking about today. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works is dead, but someone will say you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Guess what? Even the demons believe that and they shudder. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also also faith apart from works is dead. It's both. One of the main reasons that we're excited about developing a partnership with Wagner Hills is that it's an organization that is meeting tangible, important needs and preaching the gospel. One doesn't replace the other. In the new year, we're going to be getting into Acts chapter 6, which records interactions with the disciples and some of the new believers about the fact that food wasn't being distributed fairly to some of the widows in their midst. We read this in verse 2 of chapter 6. The twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word and on this point john stott said this he satan sought to deflect the apostles from their priority responsibilities of prayer and preaching by preoccupying them with social administration which was not their calling If he had been successful in this, an untaught church would have been exposed to every wind of false doctrine. They might have been out there meeting needs, but they wouldn't know what to believe. It's both. The importance of the ministry to the widows was not minimized. They entrusted this ministry to solid people, but the priority was placed on preaching and prayer. We need to do both of these things. Could we do better? Sure. Yeah, we could. No church is perfect. Crossridge is the closest, but no church is perfect. (laughs) I don't really think that. Justice, generosity, these are things that are so close to the heart of God. He cares so deeply about them and so should His people, but it shouldn't replace the gospel. But the gospel, if we're preaching it rightly, if our hearts actually believe it, should prompt us to generosity which takes us to our last point generosity can be radical and costly there was not a needy person among them this is verse 34 for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles feet and it was distributed to each as any had need In the introduction to his commentary on the book of Acts, Bruce Milne said this, Warning, studying the book of Acts can be very bad for your health. Specifically, it may cost you a lot of money. It could involve you in conversations leading to being dismissed, even mocked. It will very possibly undermine some of your most treasured ambitions and even require you to abandon some of your long, cherished dreams. It may involve you in profound relationships with people from very, or pardon me, people very different from yourselves, Who speak the oddest of languages and live in the poorest, most densely populated, loneliest, or trendiest of places on planet Earth. It may lead you to adopting new disciplines in prayer, affect your sleeping patterns, and perhaps even shorten your life. Like sign us up, right? That's the church. But here's the thing. It may be costly, but once Jesus gets a hold of your heart, when He brings the hearts of His people, His church into line with His, none of the things that we risk losing are worth anything in comparison to what it is that we have been given. Jesus said, "...the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys the field." Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Generosity comes at a great cost. It can and really should be life changing, but the things that we're giving up are nothing in comparison to what it is that we receive. Reward from the Father, the joy of meeting the needs of the people you love, and those people, experiencing an unbelievable gift of grace from God through you. But again, that becomes a bit of a caveat. Who do we love? Do you actually love the people here today? Like, let's do it. Take a look around. Look around you. You don't have to look around you. I'm sure there are people here that you love. There are people in this room that I'm sure you love more than other people. There are also people here that I am sure you would not be able to use the word love to describe the way that you feel about them. I think the idea of sacrificing for those who have need is sometimes hard for us because we don't actually love people. We don't love those around us. And it goes back to the idea that generosity comes from a heart that's shaped by the gospel. Our love for one another, if it's real, should compel us to be generous with one another. And that comes at great cost. Guys, they sold houses to meet needs. Not to give their bank accounts breathing room. They gave it away. Who does that? Radical, costly generosity. It can hurt to give like that, but it can also bring with it a great deal of joy and incredible reward from our Heavenly Father. There's lots of you in here who are well aware of the fact that you are doing just fine financially. And others of you in here might not consider yourself poor, but you might not have much wiggle room with which to be generous. You might say, well, I would be generous if I had the money. Like, if I was rich, I could be generous like this. Last week, much to the chagrin of myself and other Blue Jays fans everywhere, Superstar Shohei Otani signed a 10 year contract with the LA Dodgers in the ballpark of $700 million. To spend that much money, he would have to spend nearly $8,000 US an hour, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year for 10 years. That's outrageous. But again, it actually has nothing to do with what you have. It's an issue of the heart. If our hearts can't be generous with what we have right now, we're not going to be generous when we have more. Not without a change of heart. So since we're all just a bunch of selfish sinners who sometimes need to be told what to do, should we as a church, like should Crossridge mandate that if you become a member You have to sell everything that you have and bring it here and we will then distribute it to the poor. That's not where I'm coming from today. To be generous in this way is a command. However, I'm not standing here today telling you that you need to go home and make that list and liquidate everything and bring in the money. I mean, if that's what God is telling you to do right now, I mean, I'm not going to stop you from doing that. But it's a command like the others that were given by Jesus. Commands that we follow because of our love for Him. Our love that we have for one another. 2 Corinthians 9 says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. Right? That's important. For God loves a cheerful giver. Okay, so now I've told you that it's a command, but that it's also optional based on what's happening in your heart. So which is it? Well, I think that this command actually has its roots in a command that we see elsewhere. In Matthew 22, Jesus says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All of it. That's the command, right? Our obedience to that command comes from our love for the God and for others. And it's the example that we have been given by the one under whom we come together as Crossridge and under who we should all be of one heart and soul. And that's Jesus And what is the example he gave us? Philippians 2. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God, something to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And my commandment is for you to love one another. This is the example. This is the command. This is what we are to do. But it's got to come from our hearts. It can't come from us giving you a bunch of rules. And we're not going to do that. That said, we're going to call the ushers forward to take up the tithes and offerings this morning. That's not true. <laughs> That's not true. Let's pray together. God, we do thank you for the fact that you have given us so much. And we just pray that that gift that You have given us would change something in us and make us want to love You with everything that we have. God, we pray against the temptation to to fall in love with our wealth and with our things. None of that is ever going to bring us actual joy. And God, you have told us that it's important for us to be sharing because there are those who need to eat. God, help us. Help us to see. Help us to be aware and soften our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.